Much of rural America has been left behind in the economic recovery that has transpired since the Great Recession. Can Opportunity Zone investing reverse that trend? The Emerald Coast Opportunity Zone in northwest Washington state is a unique group of rural municipalities and tribal nations that has collaborated on producing a portfolio of rural Opportunity Zone projects with scale. What have been some of their biggest challenges so far? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. And on today's episode, our conversation is going to focus on rural and tribal community development. The Emerald Coast Opportunity Zone is a conglomeration of the 14 Opportunity Zones in Clallam and Jefferson counties located in northwest Washington state. It offers a good case study for how rural communities can work together to attract private capital investment through the Opportunity Zones program. The Emerald Coast Opportunity Zone group is a collaboration of Olympic Peninsula tribal nations, municipal governments, and economic development groups. And joining me today are representatives from all three of those groups. Julie Knott is Regional Project Manager for Clallam County's Economic Development Corporation. Rod Fleck is a City Attorney for the Town of Forks, Washington. And Larry Burtness is Interim General Manager of the Quileute Tribe. Julie, Rod, Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Great, great to have uh, all three of you here. There's, we're actually breaking a record right now. This is the uh, most guests I've ever had on a single episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. We've got, uh, we've got three guests plus myself. It's a first. So to start us off, I, wanna, I want you guys to kind of highlight your approach. I, I feel like your approach is unique for a couple of reasons. Your approach to Opportunity Zones is unique for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because it's collaborative across multiple communities, including tribal nations, and over a very wide geography. And, and secondly, because you were involved so very early on, perhaps one of the earliest adopters in the state. Is that fair to say? Yeah, we were the only collaborative proposal in Washington state. And at one point, we found ourselves actually helping the state understand what the rules were uh, uh, as they came out in the in the le- at the federal legislation and the Tax Reform Act. Yeah, and it was I found it interesting when we contacted the state of Washington Department of Commerce early on in the application process. They were not prepared to handle or to even entertain a, a collaborative um, application. They encouraged a single application from the tribe, and, and actually we submitted a single application with the Quileute tribe, and then and then a supporting. Uh, part of the co- of the collaborative effort with the um, the Emerald Coast project, so we actually had two applications in place because at the early on in the process, the state wasn't sure how they were going to be able to handle it. Yes, that's that's interesting. So it sounds like you, from a community level, kind of had to direct the state in how this was going to all work. It was more of a bottom-up approach than a top-down approach. Is that fair to say? And, and, and it's really interesting that, uh, that the state wasn't really, uh, wasn't really all caught up to speed on this. Why, why were you guys ahead of the curve more so than, than the state in this regard? Well, I think a few years back, there was some uh, collaborative efforts done for economic development within the tribes on the Olympic Peninsula 
that provided a, a little bit of a, a already existing network between between the various tribes, and it, it kind of had some doors open from that. From the Quileute tribe perspective, it became a, a natural to do that because the census tract that the Quileute tribe is located in is much larger than the than the reservation boundaries. The Quileute reservation is actually very small, uh, about one square mile on the Pacific Ocean. But the census tract that, that um, we're in stretches for nearly 30 miles outside of the reservation and, and then adjoins to the city of Forks. And, uh, and the tribe owns a business park inside the city of Forks as well, which is a separate census tract. So um, there became some uh, good reasons for the, for the tribe to uh, engage further afield than, than just the tribe, just simply because of the size of the census tract and the fact that it encompassed the neighboring communities and then the adjoining neighboring census tract for the city of Forks. I also think one of the things that was going on is the there was this kind of wait and see, well, what does this mean from the federal government? What does this tool look like? Who's in charge of it? Who's going to make the rules? That was kind of the attitude with the state where a few of us were like, the project's there, the program's in place. We don't know what the rules are, but let's seize the opportunity that this is providing us to try to play a role in in laying out how those rules might affect us and how we could use them to our advantage. Um, Larry and I had worked on a project years ago, very similar, and found it pretty successful to our region by being there at the front of the wave and trying to ride it on after it's already moving. Right. You know, that, ma that makes sense, Rod. Um, thanks, for, thanks for providing some insight there. And before we dive into Opportunity Zones further, I actually want to back up for a second and get some background on the economy of your region. So Rod, I'll, I'll turn to you. Can you characterize the decline of your economy? Why hasn't it recovered since the 2008 downturn? And how important is this Opportunity Zones initiative for rural communities like yours that, that haven't had the same level of recovery as some other parts of our country? So I don't think I'm going to go out on a limb. And I don't think it's going to be that strange to say that Forks isn't that unusual from other rural towns in America, that after the Great Recession, the recovery hasn't really reached rural America. And that the the issues we've been dealing with stem back from some significant policy shifts with regard to natural resource management, of which a significant part of our economic base in Western Clallam County and Jefferson County are based, uh, timber, fishing, those type of industries. And the, the, you know, the, to be an opportunity zone, you have to be a low income community. And I think that is something that needs to constantly be referred to is that that means that the community is dealing with uh, high unemployment, high poverty, and a significant gap in the median wage between the state's median wage and the community. That, I think, is described most of rural America. And, and how important is the Opportunity Zones Initiative for rural communities like yours? It's a, it's a tool. It's a way to attract private funding and private investors interested in making rural community part of their portfolio and bringing that potential for new development, new jobs, new economic growth and new economic opportunity into our rural communities like Forks and like Lapush and like the Ho and like the Macaw and the other parts of our, our Emerald Coast Opportunity Zone. 
We can, we can build upon that uh, issue of the, the economy and, and, and the various aspects of the economy here as well. As Rod mentioned, the, the natural resources and, and natural resource industries, based industries are, are important here. In La Push, the the natural resource that's most important to the village is the fisheries, the commercial fisheries and the ocean fisheries and in the river. Uh, it's true to say, I think that just about every household on the on the reservation has at least one person in the household that generates income from from commercial fishing. Uh, so the the marina and the operations of the marina and the fishing systems here are really critical to the economy. Uh, that has a, a variety of different things that are that are impacting the success or failure of that industry. Some of which we can control locally, and some of it's international in nature that we don't necessarily have local control of. Um, the other aspect of the economy here that's, a, that's important is tourism. The, the Olympic Peninsula is a very beautiful area. It's a, extreme natural beauty. It's a large part of the Olympic Peninsula is the Olympic National Park. And the Quileute tribe operates a resort on the reservation and has a supporting restaurant and some other facilities that, that, are, that are tourist oriented and, and uh, so it, it's an important part of the a, a part of the local economy that uh, expands out a little bit away from some of the natural resource um, extraction kinds of industries, but still depends upon on the, on the natural resources of the area. Right, right. So, yeah, very interesting. And I've noticed just to circle back to that point on on rural development. Just speaking of the state of Washington as a whole now, and this data is available on the Opportunity Zones database website uh, on the Washington State page. Washington is interesting in that it actually seemed to prioritize rural communities uh, versus urban communities when it made its Opportunity Zone designations, uh, more so than most of the other states uh, it, uh, across the, the country. Only 12% of the state of Washington's census tracts are deemed to be rural by the census tract designations, but 29% of the Opportunity Zones are rural. So uh, much, much, much greater share of their Opportunity Zones are, are rural than than the statewide census tracts. Uh, Larry, I wanted to get back to you for a second here, and if you can give us any indication of the unique challenges that that tribal nations like the Quileute face in in today's economic environment. I know you spoke a little bit about how you know most of the household income is derived from from fishing, but if you can expand on that a little bit and and give us a further indication of of the challenges that the tribal nations like yours face. Well, in Washington State, there are actually quite a few tribes. There, there are twenty-eight or twenty-nine tribes. I twenty-eight maybe in 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 the state. <clears throat> Many of those tribes have casinos. Uh, some do. Uh, the Quileute tribe does not. And and in the uh, in this remote location, out on the extreme western edge of the Olympic Peninsula, right on the ocean, um, the tourism I issues are good, but we don't have uh, a lot of people would consider some tribes to be wealthy because of casino operations. That that's it doesn't happen here. So the the community is very small. About 450 people live on the reservation, uh, and the Quileute tribe has about 830 enrolled members. So about half the tribe live elsewhere, either um, 
in in Tacoma or Olympia or down in California or other places where they've they've uh, left to find jobs. Uh, there's there's really a, not a lot of uh, industry here or opportunities for uh, high wage jobs. The fishing industry can can be uh, very positive. It can generate good revenue for the people who work in that industry, but it's also cyclical and dependent upon on the success of the resource. As an example, over the last decade, the crab fishery averages probably 800,000 pounds of crab caught per year, but two of the last three years had less than 160,000 pounds caught. Um, that reduction to that low, 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 low level of, of success in the crab fishery uh, is a disaster proportions. And, and in fact, we've received disaster recognition from the U.S. Department of Commerce and, and compensation for that because it, it truly was an economic disaster to, to drop from uh, 800,000 to a million pounds to um, less than 15% of that. It was uh, a pretty serious impact on the, on the community. It put us in a situation where the fishermen can't maintain their boats. They can't, uh, and it and it has an impact not just in the year that that the that the reduction takes place, but for subsequent years because the uh, the vessels aren't prepared properly or, or or can't be just because there's not money available to keep the boats uh, in operation, and uh, uh, it it has an, a deteriorating effect on the on the facilities because the money doesn't flow through to keep the maintenance up on the on the equipment and on, on the ice manufacturing and on the docks, it, it has a, a serious compounding effect. Good. So there's there's truly a, a need, an economic need in this region of the country. I think you've you've characterized it well. Julie, I want to turn to you now and, and get you involved in the conversation here a little bit more. Could, could you tell us the story of how all of this came together? When and how was the Emerald Coast Opportunity Zone put together? Yeah, I can. Um, over a year ago, 15 months ago, uh, five tribes, three cities or four cities, two counties and two port authorities met in the same room in an unprecedented event. And we prioritized our opportunity zones together. In our state, Governor Jay Inslee uh, asked communities to nominate their own census tracts. So we determined which tracts would be nominated on a competitive basis. And then we did that together. So we made our priorities very clear to the governor and we took a risk and submitted a collaborative proposal with proposals from all of us. And so that was that was risky because we really didn't have approval to do that yet and it hadn't been done. But we still pressed send at five o'clock, a famous Monday to our governor. But what we had that was different was we submitted them together, but we also had over 30 letters of support for each census tract nomination. So our community was wildly supportive of what we were trying to do as well. So it started at that very level from the earliest time. And I think it might help to know a little bit about us because we're in the corner of Washington state. And you can see if you look at an opportunity zone map, um, it, it, they color the opportunity zones green and the qualified zones. And we're very green in Washington state in the corner. And it, it might help to know that we have one road in and one road out. 
We have a floating bridge and ferry service that's weather dependent, and we have very lim limited access to broadband and phone service. So it, it can and talk about that with our wildlands that Larry described. We have four temperate rainforests and a million acres of wilderness and 70 miles of wild coastline. So it, it's a real geographic challenge for us to communicate, and we did it anyway. And that was we were the only collaborative proposal in Washington state and our governor awarded every single one of our nominations to us. So we were, um, we started off on fire and we continued on aggressively. Well, that's good for you. Uh, despite your challenges that you were able to come together and, and succeed like you did, I, I applaud you. I applaud the efforts that, uh, that your communities took to, to make sure that, that you were designated as qualified opportunity zones where, where you needed to be designated. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Emerald Coast Opportunity Zone? I want to hear more about its strategy and, and its mission. Yeah, um, well, the strategy is complete cooperation and collaboration, and we don't all only limit this to the Emerald Coast. We, we, we work statewide, and one of the first things that happened to us when we became a collaborative entity and called ourselves the Emerald Coast Opportunity Zone is Washington State Department of Commerce and our uh, Congressman Derek Kilmer. They, they were spot on and, and saw us coming and supported us from the very beginning because for rural opportunity zones, to have the capacity to respond to this is very difficult. And so we had a lot of support from the very beginning from the state and also from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. So we started by listening to our community. We spent a summer traveling around the area, a team of us, and listened to what the community wanted to know, concerns, uh, what assistance did they need. And then from then, we did a series of workshops um, to educate our community about the incentives for Opportunity Zones, how it works, and how we might be able to participate. And then we went to start to dig in to see what kind of projects are out there. And we didn't limit them to Opportunity Zone projects. We just asked our community, what are you cooking? What do you have going on? What do you think? And so we have built a large project bank from that. And so as investors call us, we can actually give them various types of projects and whatever suits them, they pursue. So that's all. That's how all that played out. Um, we also kept going with that. We had a statewide Opportunity Zone convention in November last year, and we worked on the steering committee for that, the Emerald Coast Project did with the Washington State Department of Commerce. And that was really important because investors were there, uh, um, tribes, cities, counties, and we presented our projects to investors. We learned what investors might be looking for. And 10% uh, of the attendance at that conference in Seattle, Washington was from the Olympic Peninsula tribes and cities and opportunity zones. And that was a huge deal because it takes an awful lot to get over there. So again, we've been collaborating and as a group uh, being a force. And then we kept going with that as, as far as uh, measuring our progress and testing assumptions. We spent some time out in the field with investors, CPAs, and a lawyer to um, have them introduce them to various types of opportunity zone projects we have out there to see what they think is investable. And we learned some pretty important stuff with that. What we learned is we learned not to vet the projects that we present. We learned that we keep a list of every opportunity and we present or convene whenever we can. And that's not just the projects we have locally, but across the state. When we know of another organization that has the need for solar panel manufacturing, for instance, and we know the sale on solar panels, we'll be sure to refer them. So you've learned not to vet your own projects. You're going to 
leave that to the to the open market. Just if anybody in your community has any type of project, you'll go ahead and and list it in your project bank. Is that right? Definitely. Yeah. It, it, we, we realized that we would do a disservice, especially because we have a lack of technical capacity right now to respond to opportunity zones. So if we vet that, um, we may be limiting that person or that project when in actuality with more technical expertise, they could pull it off. And what types of projects do you see coming into your, into your project bank? What type of projects does your community want built? Well, the projects vary. All, um, for instance, in downtown Port Angeles, there's a, a trifecta of projects, and it starts with a performing arts and conference center, and then right next door is a tribal uh, longhouse and cultural center, and then right next door to that is a marine science center, and then very close in the vicinity is also a tribally owned hotel and um, a, a 72 a, a unit apartment complex. So that's all on the Port Angeles waterfront, a very undeveloped waterfront right now. Um, over on the coast, the projects are a little different. Larry, you wanna talk about those? Well, in, in the push with the Quileute tribe, we have, we have several different projects that are underway and that have been underway for, for some time. Um, the, the, the commercial fishing operations, of course, I, I mentioned are, are, are really critical to the economy here. And, and and uh, the enhancements to the marina and and especially to the um, ice plant uh, to enhance and build and increase the capacity of the ice manufacturing that's that's very critical to the commercial fishing operations is a is a big uh, high impact project here uh, potentially makes the difference between the the success or failure of the commercial fishing operations. Uh, the difficulty with something like an ice plant is that it, it doesn't make a lot of money by itself as a as a as a as a product produced, but it, the a uh, investment of six hundred fifty or seven hundred thousand dollars in an ice plant protects and and enhances a four million dollar fishing industry. So that that's a a, a core economic uh, issue and 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 project. The tribe's uh, economy and economic projects also stem around around the resort and some of the enhancements and the expansion of the resort and some uh, ancillary capacities there. So those those are the things that are sort of economic development projects at the top of the list here. But we also have some <clears throat> community development projects as well. The tribe um, is located in a tsunami inundation zone, and the most of the lower village is in a in a very dangerous area related to tsunami, and so we're in the midst of a project that we call our Move to Higher Ground project. In 2012, uh, about 285 acres of land was transferred from the National Park Service to the tribe. Um, that's a high ground area for for community development, in a really kind of an unprecedented action by Congress, <clears throat> and we're in the process of master planning and development of that area for um, a, a new school and for uh, tribal services uh, of all sorts and for housing. And, and so all of that, uh, although the land was made available to the tribe, <clears throat> no, no money was associated with that from, from the federal government. So we have challenges with, with raising funds for, for housing and other, other community development services that uh, I know are, some are eligible for this, this uh, uh, Opportunity Zone funding, but it's not clear exactly how that can all move forward. Uh, we did receive funding for, for the school construction for a new school. We've, we've received a, a, a grant of $46 million to, to build the new school. So that was a big step forward. 
but we still have a, a lot of needs for the rest of the community development as we move the move the, the whole village out of the tsunami zone onto higher ground. Right. A lot of need for, for more development, more revitalization there. And you're hoping that the Opportunity Zones program can incentivize some private capital to flow into your communities. What what types of investors are you attracting so far? Is the is the Emerald Coast Opportunity Zone attracting so far? Well, I'm getting calls from mission investors and impact investors, and then some investors that um, from the greater Seattle area that really just, they want to know what is happening out in rural opportunity zones. And a lot of them have actually made the time to come out and see us for themselves. We took a, we've had several bus tours where we've taken investors um, directly to our opportunity zones and all of the opportunity zone stakeholders. We get on that bus with those investors so they can take a look and talk to us and get to know us. And it, what I what investors are telling me is that they really want to invest in rural opportunity zones, but they need help finding us. And that is one thing I've heard over and over again is how how do we find you? And you know, there's a lot of websites with opportunity zone um, projects on them and everything, but but still that that connection we're still working on. Yeah, absolutely. And is your intention to create your own qualified opportunity fund or are you going to leave that to other investors who come in or other developers? And and maybe, Rod, maybe I can pull you back in. You can you can address this question. Well, I think that's that is one of the underlying questions. Um, I'm one of these folks who has a strong belief that if we are engaged at all elements of the of the effort, we will benefit directly and indirectly from that. The challenge is understanding what the requirements are, the rules and the structures for such opportunity funds. That's, I I would jokingly say, a few pay grades above my capability. So I would love to hear from folks interested in how these opportunity funds are created, managed, and structured. I think there's some talk about, well, let's just wait to see who shows up and help us. Um, I'm going to just point that the last 15, 20 year track record on that isn't all that great for rural America. So I think we can be in charge of our own destiny by seizing that opportunity. And then also some models folks are talking about, well, let's create something where everybody just pays to get into it and then pays to have their project listed and all whatnot. I'm not a big fan of that one. I, I kind of feel that if we create a list of projects, that list will uh, grab attention, that attention will grab interest, and that interest will grab focus and movement. And so I, I feel that's a more um, equitable approach to, to dealing with some of the, the projects in rural America. And some of the projects aren't going to have a 15, 20, 30 percent return on investment. Some of these projects that we're talking about may only have a 3 to 5 percent return. And if we could create a fund that has a social equity element to it, where we have that maybe the higher real estate investment and in local housing that has that better return, and then the lower return on investment that might be associated with the tribal ice house, and the average is five to seven percent in total for the fund, that seems to me to be something both doable and rewarding. Yeah, you get to the five to seven percent range, then then that's starting to become more of a, a real return you're getting there. So I guess the, the only question is the, the question you're struggling with now is whether you need to form the Qualified Opportunity Zone Fund yourself. And you admitted 
that's a little bit over your head in terms of how to do that, um, or or you have to wait for for someone else to do it. But but the if you build it, they will come strategy sounds like it hasn't panned out for your community uh, over the last several years or, or decades even. Well, I think it's more of the if we're interested, they'll come and help us, and they'll be able to do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, they might be interested, but they may not be able to do the, all these things that you're expecting. So. You know, let's seize control of our destiny a little bit more. We did it with the creation of the Emerald Coast Opportunity Zone. We've done it, you know, with trying to understand and work together as a community. So there may be some value in saying, well, let's let's understand what this next step is. And and one of the challenges there is we're pretty remote. Um, and some of the, you know, banking institutions and the investing institutions are not necessarily out in forks or a push. I, I don't understand why, but they're in these much bigger places like New York, Chicago, San Francisco. And, you know, so we need to find ways and hopefully this podcast or maybe some folks, hey, that's an interesting idea where we can bridge that gap, that um, that element of this program that I think a few of the rural communities are struggling with understanding the best way to do this. And I, th- I think you need to also look at the, the way that, um, for example, here at the Quileute Tribe, the way that projects have been funded historically. And, and what opportunities have been on the Olympic Peninsula without and before this opportunity zone um, impact. There are several sources of money that, that, that a small tribe like the Quileute tribe has, has had opportunity to tap into. Uh, grants from the federal government has been one major element uh, through things like the Indian Community Development Block Grant Program through, through HUD. Uh, USDA funds for for grants. There are some small grants for planning, and then the USDA guaranteed loan programs are are one source of of funds that have been tapped. And there are three CDFIs that that are on the Olympic Peninsula that do provide uh, competitive interest rates for for loans. Um, but frankly, the the many of the small tribes don't don't necessarily tend to uh, opt for for loans just because of the um, uh, uncertainty in some of the economies and the and the uh, uh, question about paying paying those things back over time, even if the money is very attractive in in the loans setting. Um, I also work here with the Kulia tribe as as a grant writer, and and we've had a great deal of success at writing grants, but those are all also very very limited in terms of how they can be applied, and and very few grants available for construction, for example. Um, so those are those are one of the aspects of of the way the tribes are sort of used to getting money, um, and and this kind of financial instrument that that expects um, connections to to uh, high dollar or outside investors that come from financial institutions that are outside of this region is a is a different animal for the for the tribe. Um, it's it's not something that they're technically connected to, and it, it raises some serious challenges. I was going to say, I think Larry really has hit on one thing in that Julie and I have found ourselves since the inception of our efforts and Maya talking about this in January, and when she came on board as the uh, EDC interim director on like the first part of February, explaining that this is an investor-driven program. This is not a grant. This is not a government program. This is, this is an investor-driven program then an investor has to have a rate of return. Now, you might have a social equity investor who says, hey, I want my rate of return to be 2%. 
but I also want it to help women in poverty. I want it to help housing issues, and I want it to help uh, raise awareness of these issues. Okay, we can make that happen. But it's different because it's investor driven, and that has been a challenge, Julie. I would say we have faced since day one. Yep, I would say that's true, Rod. Yeah, it's it's interesting you point that out. This is a a different animal, as as Larry alluded to, attracting private capital through opportunity zones. It's just one of many tools that can help get these projects off the ground, along with CDFI loans, along with federal government subsidies and grants from numerous other federal programs. But yeah, the Opportunity Zones program, it's just much different and it's it's more difficult to kind of get your arms around when you're first starting out. It's not a grant. It's not a loan. It's not a subsidy. It's 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 private capital investor driven. You're absolutely right. And and most most of these investors are going to be looking for a return. What are what have been some of the other big challenges or frustrations with the Opportunity Zone program so far? I would say for for me, uh, I a lot of people listen to media, Forbes and and other really big newspapers, magazines, and and when there's doubt cast about Opportunity Zones, uh, it, you, we pay attention to them, whether or not we really know if it applies to a rural Opportunity Zone or an urban Opportunity Zone. And the, the two conversations are very, they, they're similar, but they're very different. Um, and so a lot of the comments that you see nationally are, are more, I would say, uh, focused on what a concern of a r- urban opportunity zone, and so like you know things like gentrification concerns and things like that. We don't ha- we don't speak a lot of that around here. Um, so that's that's one of the examples I can give you. Yeah, gentrification and and resident displacement isn't really a concern in in a rural setting like like where where you where, where you're investing or where you are hoping to attract investors. Right. So when doubts are cast like that, then we need to be able to defend them. And that requires capacity. And that's something that we could use some help with. Yeah. There's another there's another technical aspect that I think is important. And, and that is the the understanding of what kind of a pr- prospectus is, is expected. Um, what kind of proposals um, will be examined or and and which ones will simply go in the trash. Uh, we don't have a lot of experience and and capacity in in here to deal with those kind of uh, financial presentations except in in grant projects which are presented in a in a very specific way ordinarily when you write a grant but it, it may not meet the needs or expectations of the investors who are looking for a, a prospectus uh, related to the project I I also think that part of that language barrier is the folks interested in pursuing opportunity zones also have to deal with folks asking some very technical, detailed questions from their peers at the regional level. And if we don't have an instant answer, um, you know, enter the internet and that information may not be accurate. You know, we've been, we've been very blessed podcasts like yourself, um, EIG and others have been putting out some really good, solid information that we've been able to walk into someone and say, well, wait a sec, here's actually the source. Here's something you need to look at or listen to that will help explain that point. We've also been talking and and hoping to pursue in the fall some education opportunities with accountants and lawyers and trust advisors 
uh, estate planners in the region and in the state to get them aware of the potential of this tool for their client uh, or potential clients. That would then have the ability to help bridge some of these discussions much better. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great idea to do some seminars or some learning opportunities in the fall. I I, uh, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, you you brought up EIG as one of the educational leaders. You're absolutely right. Uh, and Julie, you were a panelist on EIG's Opportunity Zones webinar a few weeks ago. Can you share any insights from that? What and what did you have to say? And what did the other panelists say? And 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 did you receive any comments or questions from from any of the audience members? Yes, we were. Um, we had the privilege of being Washington State was selected to participate on the EIG panel, and that's the Economic Innovation Group, which is the Oz think tank out of Washington D.C. And we, as an Emerald Coast leader, I had actually been pursuing uh, Rachel Riley there because of her interest in rural investments. And it turns out the State Department of Commerce was doing the same thing, and so was the National Development Council here in Washington State. So we were all trying to make a, a relationship with them so that we could be heard as far as our rural needs and our and especially rural and especially tribal and our partnerships. So this um, is a third in their webinar series, and basically it's <clears throat> the rural and tribal communities are working with state officials, and we identified our local priorities and um, how we uh, plan to bring our investments, our visions to life, and. Um, we also uh, we participated with the North Star Opportunity Zone and um, some others because we have some very strong um, relationships between um, not only our Opportunity Zone, but others in Washington state. And we get a lot of support for that. So being on this um, work EIG webinar meant that, you know, we, we have a national voice right now and we are trying to share what we know. So we were very privileged to be able to speak with them. And uh, that was just I think that will be um, recorded and available in the future. Good. Now I'll, I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes for this episode. Uh, getting toward the end of our conversation here uh, with with the four of us here, I just wanted to give each one of you a uh, last chance to convey to our listeners uh, uh, any any type of message that you want them to uh, take away from our conversation today. And Larry, I'll go ahead and start with you. Well, I think that the the biggest issue here is to understand that although we're we're a very rural and remote area um and we have a uh, components to our economy that are uh growing uh things have been up and down over the last decade or or, or longer but there are good things happening here we have a lot of really um uh, uh, excellent development processes underway and uh, some opportunities that, that exist, I think, for um, people who are interested in investments that will have a high impact. This uh, uh, area uh, is a challenge to develop things into uh, and, and to work around. And so every dollar that gets invested out here has a, has a significant impact in the community. Uh, where uh, investments in in some regions might be lost in the in the clutter uh, out here on the west end of the Olympic Peninsula, uh, any any project that moves forward with success has a has a high impact on the local community and the local economy. Good and and Rod, do you have a final thought you'd like to share? 
Well, I'll just follow up quickly on that. If you want to make a difference as an investor and you want to have that be a difference that benefits you, but also benefits those around you with your investment, rural Washington and ECOS is the place to make that investment. And in doing so, you'll help us address those issues of poverty, unemployment, and uh, wage gaps. So, you know, it's an opportunity to come out and be a part of a community and be a significant contributor to that, uh, that change element. Good. And, and Julie, I'll let you get the, the last word in here. Uh, thank you. I would say that tribal partnerships need far more exploration, and we intend to go in that direction as well. And in a few weeks or maybe a month or so, if you take a look at the Sorensen Impact Center, they have a catalyst competition for innovation and opportunity zones. And the Emerald Coast Opportunity Zone and the North Star Opportunity Zone participated in a catalyst competition video. Six sovereign nations, cities, and citizens were interviewed for this video, and you'll be able to see more about our work and the work that we're sharing with the nation. And we hope to keep that up. Good. Well, the three of you, Julie, Rod, and Larry, it's been great speaking with you today. Uh, I appreciate our conversation. Can can one of you chime in right now and just uh, tell us where our listeners can go to learn more about the Emerald Coast Opportunity Zone? That's me. Uh, we have a website called Emerald Funds with an S dot org. You can also catch us on Twitter at ecozwa. That's E C O Z Wa. And then personally, you can get a hold of me at Julie Not Northwest. That's Julie Not N W. And, and for me at the City of Forks, just uh, contact us at the City of Forks, ForksWashington dot org. Spell out Washington as one Forks Washington and spell out Washington, and you can find us there. And uh, or get you know find us uh, through Julie. And the Quileute Tribe maintains a website at quileutenation.org, and uh, that has links to pretty much all aspects of the community and the the government, uh, and links to the to the tribal school and other entities here. Uh, it's pretty easy to find information about the Quileute Tribe. It's uh, gets a lot of attention on, on the internet. Um, from and has for for the for the work we're doing on the Move to Higher Ground project and and the impact of the Twilight novel series. That's right. You guys, uh, you guys kind of came into public consciousness uh, when when those books and those movies came out because it featured the Quileute yeah, tribe, right? Exactly. <laughs> Good. Um, well, for for all our listeners out there, I'll have show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website for this episode. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com/podcast. And you'll find links to all of the resources that Julie, Rod, Larry, and I discussed on today's show. I'll have links to ECOS, the Emerald Coast Opportunity Zone project. I'll also have links to the Quileute tribe, Tribal Nation and the City of Forks, Washington, as well as a couple of the other resources we discussed, the Sorensen Impact Center and the EIG webinar that featured Julie a few weeks ago. Julie, Rod, Larry, thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you. Thanks for the Thank you so much. And I wish you the best of luck with, with getting your projects funded in the future. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit opportunitydb.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund Investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.